Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. I'll begin reading with verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, this evening we come to the fruit of the Spirit termed here as goodness. Uh, the term is used to describe the character of things, such as in Luke 8 9, speaking of the good ground, or in Matthew 7 17, of a good tree. And it is used in a moral sense to describe persons. Uh, it's used in Romans 15:14 to describe the character of Christians. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. And then let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9. I'll begin reading with verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So there again we have the fruit of the Spirit, this time in a more abbreviated way, but goodness is at the top of the list. Uh, one famous commentator distinguishes goodness from the preceding word that we talked about last time we met, which was kindness, by saying that goodness is a sterner quality of doing good to others even when it is unpleasant for them. And he cites Christ cleansing the temple and Christ denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees. How the Lightfoot makes the distinction one of disposition and action, so that goodness is a disposition and kindness is more to do with the action rather than the disposition. But as you can see, kindness and goodness are closely related to each other. 
The next term that we have is the term faithfulness. The Greek word that's used here is the same basic word that is translated faith throughout the Bible. And the basic meaning of that word faith is a firm persuasion induced by hearing the gospel. In other words, belief. But the word also can mean, in some contexts, trustworthiness. And that's what it means here. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 3, you'll see an instance where it has to mean something like that. Romans chapter 3, verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now that's that same word. Faithfulness is the word that normally would be translated faith. So obviously it's inappropriate to talk about the faith of God because God knows everything. But this is the meaning faithfulness, trustworthiness. And then another instance would be Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, the New King James Version says, and it's that same word for faith. All good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. The term good is a separate adjective. So, good faith is not stealing. And that's the way the term good faith is uh, sort of the way it's used. It's used in a, in a broader sense, but it's used that way uh, as a legal term as well. It has to do with uh, acting uh, in a trustworthy manner. So, one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness, being trustworthy. Now, the next term that we have is gentleness or meekness. And this is a term that is very difficult to translate, so we're going to spend some time on it. Um, the various versions use various words to translate this term. In fact, uh, they will use different terms even within the same version. Uh, I counted up five different terms that are used in the New King James Version. Uh, gentle, meek, lowly, humble, quiet. Now, the term is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. And we'll look at several references in Matthew. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Behold the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it's the same word, meek. The ESV uses humble at this point. And then 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, we're told, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is an adornment of the Christian profession. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Here's the term quiet used. And it's the same word, meek, which is very precious in the sight of God. And of course, this is an admonition to Christian wives. Now, Vine uh, gives a rather extensive definition of this term and uh, in an effort to try to get at the real meaning of it because none of the terms that are used uh, really adequately convey the meaning of the Greek word. And I'm just going to read some of what Vine says. In its use in Scripture in which it has a fuller, deeper significance than in non-scriptural Greek writings, the word consists not in a person's outward behavior only, nor yet in his relations to his fellow men, nor in his mere natural disposition. Rather, the word signifies an inwrought grace of the soul, and the exercises of it are first and chiefly toward God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is closely linked with the word for humility and follows directly upon it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. Just look at that passage because it gives us a, uh, a sense of the associations that uh, frequently come with this word. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another in love. Now the term I, the gentleness is, is the word that we're looking at here. It's meekness. With all lowliness and meekness with long suffering bearing with one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you see the things that meekness is associated with. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 also gives us the same sense. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So Vine says that it is only the humble heart or the meek heart that is in view, and which as such does not fight against God and more or less struggle and contend with Him. This meekness, however, being first of all a meekness before God, is also such in the face of men, even of evil men, 
Out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which they may inflict, are permitted and employed by God for the chastening and purifying of his elect. In Galatians 5.23, which is the passage we're looking at this evening, it's associated with self-control. The meaning of the word is not readily expressed in English, for the terms meekness, mildness, commonly used, suggest weakness and pusillanimity to a greater or lesser extent. Whereas the Greek word does nothing of the kind, nevertheless it is difficult to find a rendering less open to objection than meekness. Gentleness has been suggested, but as the Greek word describes a condition of mind and heart, and as gentleness is appropriate rather to actions, this word is no better than that used in the King James Version. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it is not occupied with self at all. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, the apostle appeals to the meekness of Christ. Christians are charged to show all meekness toward all men. And that's in Titus 3.2. Let's look at that. I think we've already... Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility. The ESV says courtesy, and the Greek word is the one that we're concerned with, showing all meekness to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, etc. So we are to show all meekness toward all men because we have received the righteousness of God mercifully out of his abundant grace when we did not deserve it. And so... When we are confronted by the foolish, disobedient, deceived, etc., who are serving various lusts, we're to show all meekness or humility toward them. Christians are charged to show all meekness toward all men, for meekness becomes God's elect. To this virtue, the man of God is urged in his service and more especially in his dealings with the ignorant and erring, he is to exhibit a spirit of meekness. Uh, Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And even they that oppose themselves are to be corrected in meekness as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25, James exhorts his beloved brethren to receive with meekness the implanted word. Peter enjoins meekness in setting forth the ground of the Christian hope. 
1 Peter 3.15 Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Is also our beloved brother Paul. If I got that, I've got the wrong one. First Peter. First Peter three fifteen. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So, in a sense, these terms uh, that are used to translate the word, gentleness, meekness, lowliness, humbleness, quietness, are, are good translations, but they fail to give the the power that exists behind this attribute of meekness. And the, the meekness that the Christian possesses is not because he's weak, but rather it's because he is strong in Christ. And so being strong in Christ and recognizing his position in Christ and recognizing all of his riches in Christ, he can exhibit gentleness and humility to the world. There is no no necessity for him to promote himself, no necessity for him to uh, be angry with people and to uh, lash out at people or to defend himself, but he can exhibit gentleness, meekness, lowliness, humility, quietness, which are all terms used to translate this Greek, one Greek term. Now, the last term in our list is self-control. The King James Version uses the term temperance, uh, which is no longer a good translation because we associate temperance with abstention from alcohol, mostly. But self-control applies to everything. And self-control is a, is a good translation. It's one that doesn't really need very much more elaboration, unlike, unlike the term meekness. Uh, the term self-control is constructed on a root that has the meaning of strength. Vine says it is controlling the power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. Uh, look at Acts chapter 24. Verse 25. After some days, when Felix came down with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, this is a very, I think it's a very interesting passage of Scripture. I think it's a very instructive passage of Scripture as to how we ought to deal with uh, people in general that are lost. And perhaps maybe with uh, people in authority that are lost. Uh, Drusilla 
the wife of Felix, was the daughter of Agrippa I. She was born in 38 AD. Her brother Agrippa II, after her father's death, gave her in marriage to the king of Emea, which was a petty state in Syria. When she was still 16 years old, married to this king, Felix, with the help of a Cypriot magician, persuaded her to leave her husband and marry him. She was still only 19 years old at the time of Paul's interview with her. She was Felix's third wife, and she bore him a son named Agrippa, who died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. So Paul is confronting this man, Felix. Felix, by the way, was an ex-slave. The reason he was elevated out of his slavery is because he became uh, friends with the man who was to one day be emperor, Claudius. And uh, I think at the time this interview took place, uh, Claudius had been emperor for about 12 years, maybe more. But Felix was an ex-slave, and uh, he was a very dissolute man. As I said, he had three wives, all of them queens. Um, Drusilla, uh, given off in marriage at a very, very young age, uh, then consents to, to run away from her husband, her legitimate husband, with this uh, Felix, who was in with the emperor. Of course, he could get away with it. Uh, Otherwise, you wouldn't want to steal a king's wife, would you, unless you were really in close with the emperor. So he does get away with it. He's been married to her for two, three, four years when this interview takes place. And she's still only about 19 years old. So Paul confronts these people who obviously they are, uh, well, Drusilla was a Jewess. Uh, in fact, her father Agrippa had contracted a marriage with, uh, for her, I think, with an Egyptian, and the negotiations fell through because of the fact that he would not become a Jew. That was the first marriage contract before the, the real one with the king. But she was a Jewess, uh, no doubt uh, a Hellenized Jew, a compromised Jew, compromised with Greek culture. Uh, and Felix was a pagan, a Roman, uh, who um, had led a dissolute life. In fact, both of them did. And Paul reasons with them about righteousness, first of all. What is righteousness? Well, it has to do with, with God's standards of what is right. I believe that's what he's talking about in the context. And flowing out of righteousness, self-control. And then, to show you, to, to really lock it down as to, as to the drift of his conversation with them, the judgment to come. And Paul did it in such a way that Felix was not offended. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? But rather he was afraid. So he did it in such a way that it was not a denunciation that would offend, but 
Felix and Drusilla understood, and they understood the subject. It was God's righteousness, their lack of self-control, judgment to come. They understood it in such a way that they feared, they trembled. Now that's real apologetics. I mean, that's, that's real evangelism. And this is just the first stage of evangelism. As many have said, the first thing you do is preach the law. Because the law won't save anybody. But it is necessary for people to know who God is and know God's righteous standards and know that they violated God's righteous standards. And to be able to do that so that they understand, so that they fear, tremble over God and His righteousness and judgment to come, is an amazing thing. Of course, you can't always do, even though I'm sure there were, well, there were many times in which Paul got stoned. You know, he got uh, run out of town. He, people did get offended. But he managed to do it in this case so that these two were not offended with him personally, but they trembled over the message. So, this gives us an insight into self-control. It flows out of, it's associated with the word righteousness. And it has to do with God's righteous standards. So, righteousness, God's claims upon us, self-control, man's response. And of course you know, man's response is always inadequate. But this is talking about self-control as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only time when we human beings are able to exercise true self-control in a way that approaches to honoring God's righteous standards. Look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 6. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control. So, self-control is to be added to knowledge. What is learned must be put into practice. I turn back just a little bit to Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So you see the context in which this self-control is spoken of. Good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word. Now, as we have uh, 
looked at these uh, fruit of the Spirit, it's good to once again think about the fact that uh, this is not put before us as law. It's put before us as what God has given to us through the Holy Spirit. These are the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God has given to every believer. Now, it's true He wants us to think about them. He wants us to inculcate these things in our lives. But there's no way that we can do that apart from the Holy Spirit. These are the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And so it is reliance upon the Holy Spirit that He's given to us that is the foundation and the basis for these things to display themselves in our life. And as Paul says, uh, against such there is no law. Okay, we'll stop there this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank You so much for what You've done for us in Christ. We acknowledge that we have nothing in ourselves to commend ourselves to You. We have no ability in ourselves to do that which pleases You. But because of what Christ has accomplished, we stand before You in His righteousness. And You've also given to us Your Spirit to produce in us uh, these wonderful fruit. We pray that You'll help us to see these things accomplished in our lives. In His name we pray. Amen.